0: Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at com. Thank you for listening. In the early 2000s, a long time ago it seems like now, a television show sparked what some might say is a mini revolution okay or maybe not but in any case it did give homeowners and even apartment dwellers hope for transformation the show was creative it was fun to watch it even launched several people on the show into television stardom and that show was trading spaces does anybody remember that show Oh, okay. Several of you do. If you don't, if you're not familiar with it, it's being rebooted in a, about a month or so. Um, here's, the, here's the essence of what the show was about. Here's what made it different than other shows kind of like that. There's a jillion of them now. Two families or two couples, two sets of neighbors would come together. They would spend basically a weekend renovating just one room in each other's homes. That's why it was called Trading Spaces. I go to your house, you come to my house. And they each were paired up with a designer. So I would be paired up with a designer, they would be paired up with a designer. They had a small budget, relatively small budget, only $1,000. They wouldn't let them go over it at all. And they had a shared carpenter. And with the use of these unskilled homeowners, they had two, or they ended up changing it later to three days of renovating this room, okay? And at the end, of course, there was a big reveal, Now, the show was pretty famous for you know the characters on the show. They're pretty quirky and and funny. They also, you know, gave a lot of tips about how to change things, repurpose items, and be creative about things. But probably what was most remembered about the show were the utter failures that this show produced. If you remember watching the show, you probably know some of the things that I'm about to share with you. If not, you should look it up, because I kid you not, this stuff really happened. So for me, Lori and I watched tons of these episodes. I don't remember any cool thing that they ever did. All I remember were these train wrecks that happened, okay? Here are just a few examples. There was a room that was turned into like a beach area. Hideous colored striped walls. They put sand on the floor inside the house. That really happened, okay? Okay? Another time, a room got uh, renovated and the entire thing was painted this rich, dark red color. Everything in the room was red. And on one wall, there was like this artistic thing that looked like a scene from The Silence of the Lambs had (laughs) happened. It was scary. And last, there was this time where the designer thought it was a great idea to have this huge mural of a cartoon version of her head painted on the wall in a dining room. Could you imagine eating breakfast every day, looking at her face like this in a cartoon form every day? Over and over and over, this seemed to happen. There was always the tension at the end to see just what had happened and will they like it? And if they don't like it, will they say anything? But the thing that made that TV show, I think, so great was this. What made you hooked to watch the end was really what happened at the very beginning. Because after they introduced everybody and kind of said, here's what's going down, here's where we're at, they would have the the people come and the host would eventually say, hand over your keys. You're going to be trading spaces. And that symbolic act was saying, I am not going to go back into my house until this thing is ready. I'm going to work here in their house. I'm not going to go back to mine until it's all done. That act of giving over the keys was symbolic and literal because they were not allowed to go back to their house. They were giving over control, relinquishing total control of what happened in their house, good or bad. Now today we're going to be looking at a passage in Mark chapter 13 that I think kind of speaks to that kind of relinquishing of control. We get a glimpse of what Jesus tells his disciples about what it looks like when you give over security and beauty to him, and even if those things are all removed. So, if you want, go to Mark chapter 13 if you've got a Bible. Um, we're going to read there in just a second. If you don't have one, we have some in the back. If you don't own a paper version of the Bible, which I highly recommend you read, not, don't just read it on a screen all the time. There's something different about actually flipping the pages yourself um, that actually... Helps you in understanding it. We have some for free back there, so feel free to go ahead and grab one right now if you need one. The words will be on the screen if you don't have one either way. All right? Mark chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew, and it seems like everybody else, asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These these are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand. About what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that's the word of the Lord for us today. These are heavy words to hear from Jesus. Um, not exactly, you know, happy-go-lucky kind of stuff to hear from him. And yet, um, it kind of is situated in this portion of Mark. And it's kind of the tail end of Jesus being in the temple. Jesus talks about the temple here. Over the last chapters of Mark, in Mark 11, 12, and then now in 13, the temple has either been the context, like in the background, of where Jesus has been, or he's specifically talked about it, or he's been in the temple. You might remember a few weeks ago we talked about how Jesus went into the temple courts and you know drove everybody out that were changing money there. Okay, he's been in the temple. He's been there teaching. He's been there being approached by people and, and answering questions. And in this chapter, this chapter of Mark is the longest uninterrupted teaching session that Jesus has. And it all begins with talking about the temple and even times to come. And so it's very interesting to see the disciples' reaction and then think through how are we to understand this as well. So on the way out the door, literally, out of the temple, Jesus would never walk back into that area. The disciples start making some observations, and it seems like he kind of pounces on them. But here's the thing. Handing over the keys to your temporary beauty means demolition, not just renovation. You see, handing over the keys to your temporary beauty means demolition, not just renovation. This exchange has always kind of interested me, and I'll be honest, it's kind of perplexed me over the last week or so that I've been looking at this. This interaction, you know, I picture the the disciples kind of walking out of the temple with Jesus, kind of like a work crew, you know, with their their boss, like at the end of a hard day, because they're going to where they're going to hang out for the evening and, and rest. And it seems like they've entered into a different television show, like House Hunters, because they start making all these observations about everything there. You know, like, oh, look at all these stones! Look, I, this place has a great open floor plan, don't you think? This would be great for entertaining. That's kind of the things I'm, I'm gathering that they're saying. They're gushing over the beauty of this this temple area, and they probably should. They certainly should. The temple was massive. It was beautiful. It was incredible. There's every reason to be kind of struck by a sense of awe by this beautiful, huge building that they're walking through. The temple for Jewish people was the physical center of everything that they identified with. And it was like the the centerpiece of everything. So their identity was wrapped up in their relationship with God and it centered all around this temple worship and how they could access God. So these compliments from them, on one hand, they seem like they're pretentious to me, but they're probably just affirming all the things that they feel that they, they are as a, as a person who would worship God by going to the temple. But then Jesus responds, and it's kind of like we snap our necks and say, Whoa, that was, that was rough, Jesus. And he says to them, Do you see these great buildings? There won't be one left here won't be one stone left upon another that won't be thrown down. Womp, womp. You know? Crickets actually is what happens. Nothing. They don't say anything for a while. Okay? Here's how I know that. We just have like the next sentence. They, they approach Jesus. Here's what happens. They walk out of the temple. They ask this question. Jesus responds. They don't say another thing until they get to the top of the Mount, Mount of Olives. That's roughly about a one and a half mile walk. Now imagine you leave church today and you ask a question and you get a response that you don't want and you just stay silent and walk all the way to MTSU's campus. I don't think they really want to respond yet because they're processing all of this. Like, what does Jesus mean? That had to have been a long, awkward walk. They didn't know how to respond. Jesus was prophesying that the temple would be destroyed, and that idea was shocking. And I don't know if we can really completely understand that, but it would be kind of like a Cubs fan being told that Wrigley Field is going to get destroyed. What? It'd be like a country music artist or a country music fan being told that the Ryman Auditorium is just going to be completely leveled. It'd be like Portland residents finding out that their favorite park is going to be completely demolished and replaced with a walmart okay mind blown there are no words to describe how incredibly difficult that would hear that that would be to receive hearing that the temple was a significant building it was a monument to their identity as a people and central to their understanding of their relationship with god and jesus is essentially saying That all your identity and all your security and all the physical beauty that you see right in front of you as a people, as a nation, as a religion, it's going to be completely demolished, completely torn down, annihilated. And that moment of realization is like watching the people at the end of a Trading Spaces episode reveal that they've got sand all in their living room. Are you kidding me? But eventually... After the long walk, all the way up to the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus is sitting down. Somebody gets up the courage to get some other guys together, like, hey, we should go talk to him about this. And they do. They say, tell us, Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? You see, the disciples are realizing that Jesus was being prophetic. It's not that they didn't believe Jesus. The problem was is that they did believe Jesus. If he said it, it was going to happen. These words from Jesus might be unsettling to you and to me too because we don't really have a space to even put all this stuff together, especially if you read the rest of chapter 13. There's a lot of crazy stuff that Jesus starts talking about. So essentially, we might be sitting here wondering Especially when he talks about wars and famine and persecution. Like, is he just talking to the disciples? Like, are those things just about to happen to them? Or, especially in the context of everything else, is he talking about something more than that? Are there things that are going to come even later that kind of inaugurate Jesus' kingdom on this earth? So there's a level of curiosity that the, the disciples have, but we have as well. And so here's... Here's kind of a short thing to that. I think kind of both and is kind of going on. One, the temple really did get destroyed. Okay? Historical fact, AD 70, it was destroyed by the Romans. Jewish people started to revolt in like 66. Eventually, Rome said, we've had enough. We're taking you out at the knees. Temple gone. Okay? Okay? It's been ransacked ever since. The only thing that really remains of that area at all is not the temple, but one wall that you've probably seen pictures and video of. It's called the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall where people go and they put their hands on and pray. You've probably seen that in the news or like uh, in some sort of social studies class that you've taken. That's all that's left. So this literally did happen in under 40 years after Jesus spoke these words. So what about all this other stuff? All those other things he talks about? Well, Many people after Jesus' time claimed to be a prophet or the prophet, and they deceived people into following them, and they would form these little revolts to try to rise up against the people in authority. That happened. There was political and military struggles, not just in their country, but also around them. There were disasters, natural disasters. There was an earthquake documented in AD 61. There was, of course, you've probably heard of the city of Pompeii that was leveled by a massive volcano eruption in 63. So all these things kind of led up to that, not to mention that Christians who claimed the name of Jesus were indeed persecuted. You've probably heard, or maybe you've heard, of Nero, the emperor, the Roman emperor. Nero, crazy story, okay, I've got to tell it because it's so crazy if you don't know it. His mom had somebody killed so he could become emperor, okay? Talk about helicopter parents. Hello. But here's what happens, helicopter parents. He killed her five years later. Had her killed. He killed a lot of other people too. It's kind of like watching the movie Scarface, I think. Um, Everybody's dead at the end. But eventually, uh, he was like a megalomaniac. He wanted to build buildings to you know, show off his power. And some say when a a fire started in Rome that he may have been behind it because he wanted all that stuff demolished so that he could build buildings, you know, as a monument to himself. A fire did happen, though. Who started it? We don't really know. But he ended up blaming Christians for it and having them publicly executed, tortured, thrown to lions in the Colosseums, that really happened all because people claimed the name of Christ and this is confirmed even in scripture because you can look at passages like 1 Peter 4:12 where Peter talks about the fi- don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through those fiery trials might have been a reference to Rome burning and then the suffering that followed that Hebrews chapter 11 after all the people that have expressed faith in following God time and time again at the very end of the chapter, you see some of those people were torn by lions, some of those people were lost their life, they were beheaded, they were tortured. Those things happened, those things happen immediately following Christ's death and resurrection. But here's the other side of that coin. That stuff all still happens today. It's cyclical. It happens over and over again. The, the temple is is destroyed. But all these other things, there is still geopolitical strife in our world. Just turn on the news any day. There are natural disasters all the time. I mean, have we even forget, forgotten that there were three hurricanes that hit our country just this past year? Just within the last few months. Devastating. And persecution of Christians is still a reality. And I'm not just talking about Tim Tebow not playing for a football team in the NFL, okay? That's the Lord's sovereignty. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, sorry if you're a Tebow fan. He's a great guy, but maybe he shouldn't do football anymore. Maybe he should play baseball. I'm just kidding. We needed a moment of levity. This is kind of getting heavy. But guys, some would say that even now or right now, We're living in times where Christians have been persecuted globally more than at any other time in history. It doesn't come across your news feed very often or at all. These things happen over and over again. And here's what Jesus says down in verse 8, the very end. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, if you're a mom and you've given birth, you know what those are. It's the contractions that coincide with having a baby. And they get worse and worse and worse the, quicker, the, the closer you get to actual delivering. Those things are never celebrated. You never celebrate those. Even though you know that they're kind of a promise that what is coming is going to be glorious and good. You're going to have something brand new right here to behold. And that is what Jesus is saying about all these things. No matter if it's wars, persecution, natural disasters, all of these things point to when Christ is going to come back and fully establish his kingdom on this earth. And our role is to endure. To endure. We must watch out. We must not settle for smaller kingdoms given to us by false prophets. We must keep our hope firmly in the kingdom that Jesus brings. And so we must just hand over the keys and trust God that he might demolish our picture of what following him will look like, but it's okay, it's good. His kingdom is good. It's coming. But I think there's something else that is kind of the undercurrent of the disciples' question in response to Jesus. I think they want to know all the details I think they want to be able to schedule it, to calendar it, and to have all their answers up front. But here's the thing. Jesus wants our obedience, not our omniscience. You See, Jesus wants our obedience, not just our omniscience. We can't even give him omniscience. Do you know what that word means, omniscience? It means to know everything. To know everything there is to know. Omniscience is a good thing, by the way, and it's a thing that describes part of God's character. That, indeed, is what makes it a good thing. The problem with that is that we often try to be like God in a way that He never intended us to be. You see, our quest to become omniscient diverts us from actually trusting and worshiping God. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3. Just remember the, the interchange between Adam and Eve and the serpent. He promised them to be like God, knowing good and evil. And in a book I read recently that I would commend to you, there are a couple of quotes about how this kind of plays out for us. And so it has been ever since. Ever since that Genesis chapter 3 moment, we tried to be like God. Human beings created to bear the image of God, instead aspire to become like God. And later she says, Rather than worship and trust in the omniscience of God, we desire to be all-knowing ourselves. And isn't that so true? God alone is to be omniscient He alone is sovereign, all-powerful. But so often we get ourselves into trouble when we try to pursue that because we don't really believe that God is those things. I have to know everything. Do you dream of being omniscient? Maybe you do. Ask yourself these questions. Do you want all your questions answered up front, no matter what it is? Is is it about a job? Is it about who you're going to date? Is it about what uh, career path you should take, what major you should have? Is it about your children? About whether they're going to be nurtured and brought up to know Jesus? Or if as adults they're going to turn away or not from the Lord? Is it about your 401k? Is it about this? Is it about that? I could name thing after thing after thing. Do we want to know those answers? Absolutely. But sometimes we pursue those things rather than just trusting in the Lord. And for me, that's also true. I seek in a lot of ways, to try to know things as much as I can. I want to know every scenario played out before it happens. You know, option A, or if that doesn't happen, option B. You know, it's like mental flow charts in my head all the time. And it's called paralysis by analysis. Because it ends up, I think about all these things, and I'm like, ugh. I mean, the irony is, is even in writing this sermon this happened, okay? I'd already planned to talk about omniscience, and it wasn't until like this morning that I'm like, I'm totally just doing this about this sermon. There's so much that I feel like there's still to know, and I still should share, and yet, I don't know everything about God. But what I do know is enough. What I do know that is clear and revealed in His Word, that is enough. And that's what the disciples We're getting at, and that's what you and I do as well. You see, your pursuit of omniscience and mine, that might be the thing that's holding us back, either individually or also as a church. Think about that. Our lack of awe of who God is, that keeps us from fully embracing and entrusting in Him and giving Him our obedience. It's why some people avoid committing to a church at all. Not just this one, but to anyone. Because there might, you know, it's FOMO. You might miss out if you just commit to one thing. You might miss out on the other thing. It's why some people don't serve. It's why people don't pursue city project if you're a college student. It's why people don't go on short-term mission trips. Because you don't know you might need those vacation days later. We want to know everything. But let's just imagine for a second, what if, what if, with no questions asked, we just took God at his word and said, I'm not going to try to figure it all out. I'm just going to trust and obey you. All right, here's here's just three short examples taken directly from Scripture. Go and make disciples. What if we just did that? What if we didn't try to figure out all the logistics of how to do that, and we just did it? What if people in our church started being intentional about reading the Bible together, about praying together, about praying for one another, and about sharing the gospel regularly with the people that are in your life? What if we actually just said, Lord, we trust you? What if we did that? What if we took it seriously to not just go on a short-term mission trip, but to have our hands completely open with a yes on the table, Lord, send me wherever you want. I will go on a permanent mission trip wherever you want to send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. What if we did that? Here's another example. Bear one another's burdens. What if we tried to not figure out all the details and all the mess that comes with that? What if we just did it? What if we weren't concerned about how all the ways that we did that could backfire on us and we just joined with a group of people to bear their burdens, to get up under the weight and kind of release it off of them instead of expecting first that all of my needs are going to be met first. What if we just took God at his word and said, yes, Lord, I will bear other people's burdens. Can you imagine how beautiful that would be? One more, what if we took it seriously When the Bible says to serve one another, not expecting to be served, but we just serve one another. Simple ways. Your neighbors, the people you work with, and of course in the church, there's always ways that we can serve one another in the church. What if instead of closing ourselves off every night and watching television and and doing our own activities, we just said, Lord, I want to serve people. How can I do that? Imagine how beautiful it might be if we started to live that out. You see, the power to reject false prophets, the power to not be alarmed by wars, earthquakes, famines, and to be on guard for the gospel in the face of persecution, to boldly bear witness in the face of beatings, even facing death, is through trusting the one who knows it all, not by being know-it-alls. And you know how I know this is true? Because Jesus himself has taken our beatings and he has endured for us. Plain and simple. You know, this passage moves in kind of a way where it goes from impersonal things to very personal things, all right? You can look at it on, on your page there. Just go back up to like verse 6 or so. It starts with false prophets, people you don't know, complete strangers, national unrest, earthquakes and famines that may or may not have anything to do with you and where you live. You hear of wars and rumors of wars, not just the things that are happening right in front of you, but things that are happening way out there that it might be happening, impersonal things. But look at how that circle continues to get closer and closer It quickly moves to they take you into the synagogues and beat you. They drag you before kings and governors. It gets really personal really quick. And last of all, it starts talking about family. Brothers will betray brothers, children's their parents, and parents their children, even to the point of giving people over to death. And all of those things are scary. And here's what I want you to remember. Think about where Jesus and the disciples were when they're having this conversation. He's sharing this. They're at the Mount of Olives. Geographically, if Jesus is sitting like it says he is and he's looking at the temple down there in the distance, there are good ways up looking over it. You could see down into the temple court area from where they're they're standing and sitting. So he's on the east side Of Jerusalem and and the temple area that temple and that city would have been unmistakable you couldn't help but see that right there but as Jesus is saying all of these things beyond all of that on a hill that you couldn't probably see is where he was going to be led to later he's not just looking at the temple that's going to be destroyed there he's thinking about his temple that will be destroyed for these guys' behalf. And can you imagine all the things that might be going through Christ's mind at that time? All the things that he is telling them you are going to endure, he's having to hear himself say, knowing that he's going to have to endure them. Think about it. And all of that, in Hebrews 12 too, it says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is saying that as personal as this might get for you, it is infinitely more personal to me. In fact, all of the things that are shared there end up happening to Jesus. He was turned over to councils. He was beaten. He stood before a governor to plead his case or to remain silent, as it were. He was placed on trial. He was sentenced to death. And yet, Jesus bore witness throughout it all to the faithfulness of his Father. He was not anxious. He spoke words only given to him by the Holy Spirit. And most of all, he endured all the way to the end. He bore the weight of the cross as the penalty for your sin and for mine. Not so that you can know everything that will happen going forward, but so that you will know his goodness. He endured to save you, to save me from eternal destruction. And he rose from the grave to make good on that promise. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Do you simply tell God, no, God, I need some more answers? No, God, I, I need to know more. You've got to tell me how my marriage is going to play out. You've got to tell me about my career path. You've got to tell me about how you're going to take care of me in, through retirement. Or maybe we should take a page out of the show Trading Spaces and we should just hand over the keys. Maybe we should relinquish all the control that we feel that we have and really we don't have it all. Maybe we should just let him call all the shots. You see, one thing the Lord is teaching and reminding me of and is taking our church through is this idea of prayer. We've been focusing on prayer for weeks now. If you're in a community group, I hope you're praying together. I hope it's changing the way that you're relating to each other. It's been great for us. But prayer essentially is a dependence on God. We're calling out to God, not because we already know all the things that we want to happen. We're just saying, God, whatever you want to happen, let it be. There's an element of just dependence that prayer calls us to. And I hope that it continues to. And I hope that that drives us to to be bold and to speak boldly when it's time, it's our time to speak for Christ. Because you know the Lord has you in places where you need to speak a word about Him. You need to speak about the Lord's faithfulness. You need to speak about your trust in Him when you don't have all the answers. And everybody else around you is wondering, why can you have so much peace? You don't know how this is going to turn out, but we do. We do know how it's going to turn out. Jesus is going to come back. His kingdom's going to be on this earth, and we get to be with Him forever. That's enough. It should be enough. And maybe you're here today and you've never put any trust in Christ before. Will you trust him now? Will you see him as good? Knowing that hardship may come, but he's already endured the worst hardship that you could ever endure. He did that for you. And here's the thing. He either rose from the dead or he did not. There is no middle ground. He is either alive permanently forever Or it's all a lie. So which one can it be? And I I would ask you, I would beg you, put your faith in Him. The man who has laid His life down for you. Will you trust Him? Will you turn over the keys of your life and follow Him? Know it's worth it. It's totally worth it. And no matter, matter the destruction that may come, Jesus is the greatest designer who has traded spaces for you. And you have no need to worry or fear about what he will reveal to you at the end, because it will be glorious, it will be beautiful. And you will say, thank you, Lord, it's all by you. Jesus makes a promise to us in John chapter 14. He says in the middle of talking about where he's going, and telling his disciples where he's going, he says this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You see, the Lord wants to be with you and me forever. Can you trust him? Is that the kind of God you can give the keys over to and say, Lord, I relinquish all control And then find the peace that comes through that. You see, Jesus is preparing a place for you and me right now. The question is, is will we trust Him? Let's pray. Father, I know that in this room there's a mix of thinking, there's a mix of reactions, There may be distractions as well that every one of us brought in today and are consuming our minds. Lord, I also know that that may be a way that some of us are trying to gain control over things. About how things will work out. About how this one thing that's really weighing me down right now. I can work out all the scenarios and find an answer that's most agreeable to what I think needs to happen But with that comes all kinds of anxiety. With that comes fear. With that comes a relentlessness to control everything. And Father, I ask that you would obliterate that like you did the temple so that you can replace it, so that you can transform lives in this room. And for any person in this room who has not placed their trust in you, I ask, Spirit, that you would lead them to know you, To know that you want to be with them and that through Jesus, you have paid the penalty of their sin. You've removed the barrier so that they can be with you. And I ask that you would give them faith to believe and as much as our church can, that we would come around them to point them to the beauty of following Jesus. Would you create in us as a people a simple, trust and obedience we don't have all the answers but you do and you're good and we can trust you let us find peace in knowing that you are good let us have boldness to trust and obey you it's in christ's name i pray